both exotic and familiar, Hawaii is an enticing destination for Americans seeking some fun in the sun. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Hawaii's inviting beach bum culture comes with a Polynesian flair. It's delightfully distinct from the mainland, yet it's about as easy as visiting any other state. As Hawaii becomes more accessible, its dreamy beaches are no longer a once-in-a-lifetime destination. Its melting pot of cultures, idyllic tropical setting, and easygoing aloha spirit make Hawaii one of the world's top vacation destinations. But its many options can also make Hawaii a little overwhelming to the first-time visitor. Coming up on today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves, we're chatting with Sarah Benson. She writes Hawaii guidebooks for Lonely Planet. And later, we'll place a call to Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula and learn how the Cancun area has been rebuilding since Hurricane Wilma. Join us as we travel to two top tropical getaways and take a few of your calls. Mahalo nui loa for being with us on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Ready for a tropical escape? I'm Rick Steves, and today we're island hopping in Hawaii where each island's unique character ensures there's always something new to experience. Later, we'll get an update on how the Mexican resort of Cancun is recovering since Hurricane Wilma. Let's start by opening the phones to see where your travel dreams are taking you. We're at 877-333-RICK or radio at ricksteves.com. we got Jenny on the line in Las Vegas. Hi, Jenny. Well, hello, Rick. How are you? Doing good. How are you? Well, I'm good, too, and I'm excited to be talking to you because I've had a problem that I have not been able to solve. Uh-oh. What is that? Well, we have a trip coming up, and we're flying to London first, spending a few days, going to Paris, spending a few days, and then the main point of it is we're going to go and spend some time with my sister, who's temporarily living in Lisbon. Mm-hmm. And I had read about and thought it would be great fun to go from Paris to Lisbon by train. It's a TVG train from mm-hmm. uh, Paris to the border, and then there's a Sud Express night train into Lisbon. Mm-hmm. But these were tickets that I could not purchase in the United States. I tried real hard to figure out how, and I never could. And so my sister bought them for me in Portugal, and now apparently there are these two pieces of paper that don't have our names on them. They have the seats and the trains, but not our names. They seem to be nothing like an airline ticket. And she's sending them to me, but I can't figure out what would happen if I either lose them or they become stolen. You know, is there any way of registering them, or does the train have a, you know, train... No, if, you're, if I was the train company and you lose your ticket, I'll just figure um, you were sloppy and somebody else is traveling courtesy of you. Well, see, that just seems <laughs> astounding to me because, of course, air travel isn't handled that way at all. No, but if if you buy a bus ticket and you drop it and somebody else picks it up, they're going to hop on the bus and ride. Well, what would be your advice then on how to... Well, I, mean, I, I, I never travel anywhere without a money belt. Well, you stick that ticket, Jenny, in your money belt, and if they get that, the last of your concerns is a missing ticket. They've stripped and mugged you. Well, I, I suppose that's true. But then yeah. having a copy of the ticket, I... Well, I photocopy the ticket, yeah. I mean, that's not a bad idea. And if you didn't have it, yeah, if you don't have your ticket, you're, you're not going to get on the train, frankly. That's a, that's a very high-class train you're on there. And uh, you just got to hang on to that ticket. Boy, well, that wasn't yeah. the answer I wanted, Rick. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand why the train people don't handle it more like the electronic tickets on airlines, because, boy, that's a big advantage. Oh, that is great, yeah. But I don't, I don't think they're quite there yet. Well, uh, Yeah, so just, just treat it like it's, like it's money, you know. That means um, keep it zipped up and out of sight until you're going to use it. I travel with a, a buttoned uh, shirt pocket, and if I'm en route, I've got my ticket buttoned in my shirt pocket, and when the conductor wants to see it, I show him. And then otherwise, I've got my money belt, and boy, that is as safe as can be. Nobody's going to get your money belt, that's for sure. Now, if someone stole it and we didn't have the ticket, but what we needed to do was still to take the trip, uh, would, the, would, would they sell us another ticket? I oh, mean, sure. Would, will they know that that ticket isn't going to be used? Well, you'll get another ticket and another seat. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. and then if, if you write down the seat number and the car number of the ticket, you can go visit the person who stole <laughs> the ticket from you. Okay. <laughs> But I mean that—that's not a—that's not Jenny's ticket. That's the—that's the rights to sit on seat twenty-two B. Wow. You see. Okay. So you just uh, stop thinking that you're going to lose it. You're not going to lose it. Put it okay. in your money belt. Okay. All right. Thank you. Have a good time. All right. Bye now. Bye. 
And we have Carol on the line in Port Orchard, Washington. Hi, Carol. Hello, Rick. Thank you for taking my call. You bet. Um, my question concerns the inexpensive e-ferrets that I often see to head to Europe. Yeah. And I know time-wise, you actually can do it even for a short weekend or time you might have free. But my question is, how do you know that you're going to be able to find lodging when you get suddenly dropped into a city and this is a spur of the moment? You know, I think it's great to travel spur of the moment, but that doesn't mean you have to come into a city without a hotel. Uh, these days, it's so cheap and easy to just get on the phone or the email and nail down some reservations. So personally, especially on a short trip where you don't need any flexibility, you know exactly where you're going to be. I would, as soon as I know when I'm landing, I'd get on the phone and arrange for a hotel. And w- would I just call normal hotel well, you need get a get a guidebook. Um, okay. You know, just yesterday, my son was going from Toulouse in France over to Florence, Italy, and uh-huh. you know Florence is very crowded. And he was on the phone, and he told me he checked a couple places they were full, and I gave him a couple of other ideas, and he found a spot. But he made the reservation by telephone, and it worked really well. You need a guidebook, and the guidebook uh, gives you the, the necessary listings, or you uh-huh. could go on the web. These days, everybody in the tourist business, you know, you can expect they'll speak English, and you'd be surprised how many places are booked out two weeks in advance, but you call them the day before, and all of a sudden they've got places available. You see, a long time in advance, a hotel does not want to book up every room, because then uh, people who stay, they're, they're return customers, or people who want to extend their stay or whatever, they, they don't have a spot. So they'll get comfortably full, but they won't fill every room until they know exactly what rooms are going to be available. So I even see. the morning, you can usually find a spot if you're calling at the right moment. You know, I like to keep my options open, but I also like to, with the high stakes of hotel selection and the cost of hotels and so on, I really like to have a a choice, and that means I try to make reservations in advance. Does that make any sense? Yes, it does. And I I have heard that in some places, even at the train station, there'll be... Um, people there are kind of scrambling to get you to come to their mm-hmm. place. That's mm-hmm. a little bit old news. Um, I was that? just in Prague, and I, I remember that beautiful thing where they would meet every international train, people with mm-hmm. small-time operators with a few rooms to rent. They'd meet the train and try to get you to come to their house. And mm-hmm. nowadays, uh, with the Internet and with booking services and so on, I don't find people doing that so much. I see. But what, you can come into Prague, and I was just there last week, and I asked them to the booking service right there at the train station. And they told me, I asked them flat out, if I come here any day of the year, can you find me room? And they said yes. Mm, and, that's uh, good to know. and the price would be depend on the, the demand. And most of those days, you'd have three or four-star business class hotels, which if somebody was nervous and booked long in advance on the Internet, they would pay $300 a night for them, but they would get them for half price if they just arrived and see what's on the push list. Because at this Excellent. point, they just want to get a couple of bodies in that room so they can get some money, you see. And they'll call up the booking agency at the train station that meets these kind of travelers that have the nerve to go around without reservations, and they book them. So that's a good option. In a worse scenario, you're going to be uh, paying more and farther from the center of town. In the best scenario, there's going to be open rooms all over the place, and you can write your own ticket and stay right downtown and get a great value. So it really depends on the demand and the season where you're going. While I could travel pretty reasonably all over Europe without reservations and and do fine, I know where I want to stay and I get on the phone and I nail those reservations down and then I get the best values. Yes, I can see that. I think it's great to be able to fly over there for a four-day weekend or something. Invest in a guidebook, call up what looks good there and make the deal. Excellent. Thank you. Good luck. I'll let you know. Thanks for your call. Bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves, and we're talking to travelers now. I got Janet on the line in Salt Lake City. Hi, Janet. Hi, how are you? Great. What are you thinking about in the, in the interest of well, travel? We're thinking we're going to go over to Sweden, uh, my husband and I and our 14-year-old daughter. We're trying to think of some fun things to do over there. What we're looking at, like my husband has lived in Amsterdam but many years ago. He lived there for three years. But we're trying to hit Sweden, Denmark, Germany, Holland, and England in a 14-day period. Is that too much to do? With a car? Yes. That's an awful lot to do. You're picking up a car where? I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but Gothenburg, Sweden. Okay, that's where Volvo's made in Sweden. Correct. That's the biggest industry up there, I think, after uh, ABBA, the rock group, right? So Uh picking up your car in Sweden, and you want to do everything in Europe and fly home from England. You bet, because this is probably my only time. Don't think of that. You're going to go back, okay? You must have the General MacArthur approach. I will return. 
Okay, right. I will return. Probably after this, I will. <laughs> okay, you will if you have a good time. So do you can do a lot, but don't always be frustrated about what you can't do because with 12 days and a family of three, you, you just got to be realistic. Now, you're going to pick up your car in, in Jotaberg or Gothenburg, and yes. then you'll drive down to... There's a new bridge, one of the most exciting bridges anywhere that connects Sweden and Denmark, if you can imagine that. It's a good cool. example of how Europe is investing in its infrastructure. And now Malmo in Sweden is part of the greater Copenhagen because of this Orasund Bridge. You'll drive over that bridge. Oh, okay. And I would say that Copenhagen is the most exciting city in Scandinavia. Cool. And so you want to check that out. So let's just think about Copenhagen. And mm-hmm. then from Copenhagen, I would drive across small town Denmark, because you've got a car. So remember, you want to you fashion your itinerary to fit somebody with a car. Copenhagen yeah. is not great for a car, but it's a great city, so you want to spend a day there. Use your car to tool around the countryside of the island of Funen. This is Hans Christian Andersen country, and Jutland. Now, if your daughter is into Legos, is she too old for Legos, 13 or 14 years old? Uh, well, she's 14, and... You know, she really doesn't. My son would probably do that, but he's not going. Oh, because my son was a Lego maniac. But Legoland, you're going right by Legoland. Okay. But remember, now you're going to get down into the heart of Europe, and Germany is the size of Montana, laced with super freeways with no speed limits. So from here, you can get where you want to go. Just get on that Autobahn and let it rip. That's why you got your Volvo, right? So you could be in Munich in five hours if you wanted to. Cool. Um, So you got yourself a couple of days to enjoy Germany, and with a family of three, I would say... You might just want to focus on the Rhine River and the Mosel River. The Mosel River is your fantasy of Germany kind of area. So that's where you'll check out castles and little half-timbered villages and and vineyards and so on. And then if you want to go back to Amsterdam, your husband lived in Amsterdam, uh, you would park outside of Amsterdam. And remember, all over uh, the Netherlands, you've got these pedal-and-ride situations where you can park your car, hop on a train, get off the train, hop on a bicycle, and so on. Half of all uh, transportation in Amsterdam is two-wheeled. So stay in a small town and take the train into Amsterdam for a day, and your husband can be a tour guide there because he knows the, the ropes well. And then use your car to explore the countryside of the Netherlands. That really is a lot of fun. And when every time I take a group to the Netherlands, Somebody in the back seat just remarks, everything's so Dutch. You know, it just doesn't let you down. It's just quintessential Dutch. And mm-hmm. uh, this will be a great experience for your daughter. And to me, the, the Netherlands is kind of like the wading pool for deeper waters of Europe. And you from bet. there, you might want to decide uh, how you're going to head over to England. Are you taking your car home then from England? No, we're actually going to drop it in England and then let them take it back up to Volvo. Oh, so you, you need to take it to England. Well, we don't have to. I mean, we can take it back. Because if you could drop it in the Netherlands and then take the the boat over to England, that would be more economic. Oh, uh uh-huh. It's quite expensive to take your car into the boat where it's much cheaper to just walk on. Really? About how much? Do you know about how much? I don't know offhand, but it's enough to uh, give yourself a couple of good days in London. So I would recommend dropping the car on the continent if you could. Take the boat and then the train into London and have a few days in London without your car before flying home. But generally, that gives you how I would spend a couple of weeks... Copenhagen, countryside of Denmark, Rhine River, Mosul River, Amsterdam, the Dutch countryside, and into London, and the remaining of your time in London. You can do more, but then I think you risk getting into this, if it's Tuesday, it must be Belgium sort of situation. Oh, you bet. And you were very close to Belgium there, but did you see my discipline? We didn't go there. Mm -hmm. All right. Have a good time. Thank you so much. You bet. Bye now. Bye. Eight seven seven three 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 rick The ins and outs of enjoying Hawaii is next on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're heading for Hawaii, and we're joined by Sarah Benson, who writes the Lonely Planet Guide to Hawaii. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Sarah, you contribute to a number of different Lonely Planet Guidebooks to Hawaii. What, what books do you work on? Previously, I've worked on the guidebook to Maui, the guidebook to the Big Island, um, the guidebook to all the Hawaiian islands, as well as a specialty outdoor guide hiking in Hawaii. Now, every connoisseur of Hawaii seems to have a favorite island. Give us a quick tour, just a big overview of the islands, what you like and, and what you'd avoid on, on the various islands. Most tourists, um, when they think of Hawaii, they think of Honolulu and the island of Oahu. I would actually encourage people to stay away from Waikiki and explore the backside, the windward coast of Oahu, where you can find small plantation villages, uh, empty surf beaches, which you would usually have to travel to other islands for. But on Oahu, you just need to go to the opposite coast that most of the tourists do. It works in the Greek islands also. You can go to a very famous place like Oahu and Waikiki and then just go to the other side of the island, and it's like going to a more remote island without leaving the main island. I think the great thing is that you can do that on any of the Hawaiian islands. Um, There tend to be tourist centers where all of the visitors congregate, but if you go to the other side of the island or just slightly up or down the coast, you can have that idyllic Hawaiian beach all to yourself if you know where to look. Um, The second most popular island to visit in Hawaii is Maui. And I think Maui is great because it has a little bit of everything. It has culture, amazing dining, resorts, beach bungalows. Um, it has rainforest, Haleakala, a volcanic national park, and also, of course, those beautiful golden black and white sand beaches that people come to Hawaii for. And I think Maui is also popular because it's so compact. You can drive around Maui in a day. Some people are big fans of the island of Kauai, which suffered a bit during Hurricane Iniki, but has made huge strides and is really bounced back. And uh, people love Kauai because it has those sheer vertical cliffs that you see in so many movies and the TV show Lost. So it has great hiking, kayaking opportunities, and uh, also stood in for Bali High in uh, the movie The South Pacific. So it really has that paradisical, small, jewel-like Hawaiian island feel. But personally, my favorite is the big island of Hawaii, just called Hawaii. And really, you have room to explore there. Jeep roads, volcanic landscapes. You even have a snow-capped mountain that some, you know, crazy people go snowboarding and skiing on once or twice a year. You can go up and have snowball fights. also has some of the most beautiful deserted beaches and rainforest, in my opinion, in Hawaii. But then there are also people who love visiting the small rural island of Molokai, which some has, say has the most traditional Hawaiian feel of the Hawaiian islands that are open to tourists. So these are the, the core islands of Hawaii, and the rest of the islands are essentially um, untouristed and, and actually not worth worrying about. Is that right? Most of them are not open to tourists or only open to tourists who are volunteering, for example, on scientific expeditions. The other one worth mentioning is Lanai, uh-huh. which is dominated by two or three mega resorts and is popular for one of those all-inclusive Hawaiian vacations. But you don't really get uh, you don't get outside the resort much, and it's a very small island, so I wouldn't recommend it, especially not for first-time visitors to Hawaii. Now, most people are flying into Honolulu, and then you have to connect with another flight to get to the other islands. Is that, is that the way it is these days? That is the way the majority of people reach the other islands. There are a few direct flights from the mainland to Maui and occasionally to Hilo on or Kona, Kalua Kona on the big island. But most people uh, transfer planes in Honolulu, which is exceptionally easy. The island hopper flights are value priced if you reserve ahead online. They're quick and uh, really, as soon as you get into the airport in Honolulu, you feel like you're in the tropics. So what's value priced mean? What are you going to pay to hop over to Maui or whatever? It fluctuates a lot because the market is so small. But generally, if you reserve 30 days in advance and buy your ticket online, you can get a one-way island flight for as low as $75. Okay. Now, you wrote a book on hiking in Hawaii. When you were going through those uh, just thumbnail sketches of the islands, what images did you have for hiking? Where are your favorite places for actually getting out and hiking? My favorite place to go hiking in the Hawaiian Islands is the first place that I went hiking, which was inside the summit caldera of Haleakala on Maui. You actually drive up to the summit area, and then you hike down on cinders and uh, into the actual belly of the volcano itself, which is extinct, but it's still pretty thrilling. And uh, you can sleep overnight up there and make it a multi-day trek. So that's my favorite hike in the Hawaiian Islands. And if you sleep there, you get the sunrise, right? Ah, yes. And it's 
an uncrowded sunrise because it is a tradition to drive up to the top of Haleakala to catch the sunrise. But if you sleep overnight in the caldera, you'll have it all to yourself. And on the Big Island, the best place to go hiking is in Hawaii Volcanoes National Park, where you can actually walk in active volcanic areas and see lunar moonscapes and live lava flows into the ocean, depending on what the volcano is doing. Um, and Hike Through Rainforest, it has a great variety of ecosystems in a very small area. All right. Here we have Carol on the line in uh, New Egypt, New Jersey. Carol, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you. Uh, my question to your guest is, and I think she answered it, about what to do, uh, how to see the volcano the best way. And we're going to Kilauea. And is that the national park? That is inside Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. And um, the most important thing to do right before your trip is check online on the National Park website for an update on what the volcano is doing. And then when you get to the island, when you get to, you know, the Hilo side of the Big Island, you can call the National Park's volcanic eruption hotline and Mm -hmm. you can find out where the best viewing areas are and what time of day is going to be optimal for seeing the, the lava flow. And you just call um, the uh, national park there? That's right. Um, the rangers are very used to the question, where can I see the live lava flow? Okay. Um, but, <laughs> but even if you get there and it's not flowing on that particular day, there's still a lot of great short walks and hikes and drive-by pull-offs where you could get views of recent lava flows and mm. other types of geothermal activities. So the park, even if the lava isn't flowing that day, it's still worth visiting. Oh, it, it sounds great. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. Well, I'll, I'll hope that the volcano is erupting for you. <laughs> <laughs> not, too, not too much. <laughs> good, good luck, Carol. Thanks for your call. Thank you. I'm speaking with Sarah Benson, who writes the Lonely Planet Guides to Hawaii. Sarah, is there a um, sort of a shuttle ferry service in the works that would enable people to hop from island to island? Or does everybody just fly? It depends on which islands you're going to visit. There. There are plans in the works for what they're calling the Hawaii Super Ferry that is going to be a high-speed catamaran hydrofoil-type transportation between the islands that will be mm, a little bit more affordable than the inner island flights. But the channel crossings are very rough, so anyone who's prone to seasickness should stick with the flights. However, there are two other long-standing ferry services from uh, Lahaina Harbor on Maui, and one is again, more of a jet foil catamaran service that goes over to a snorkeling beach on Lanai. And the other is the more traditional Hawaiian commuter ferry that goes over to Molokai. And those are susceptible to the uh, storms, in which case they'd be canceled and you'd have to fly? Yes. And even when there aren't storms, you should be prepared for a rough crossing on the way to Molokai. Um, The channel between Maui and Lanai is quite narrow, so that, that crossing is pretty glassy and smooth. And Michelle is on the line in Newark, California. Michelle, thanks for your call. Hi, thank you for taking my call today. Um, My question has to do with uh, cruise excursions. My husband and I are going to be taking my in-laws for their 50th anniversary on a seven-day cruise around the Hawaiian Islands. Um, We're going to be visiting, uh, well, we're starting out in Honolulu, of course, where most of them start, but then we'll be in Hilo on the Big Island. Um, We're going to Maui, then Kona back on the Big Island, and then to Kauai. And we're wondering what might be some excursions to take them on. They're in their early 70s. I've heard this question a lot, and it's a really good one because when you're going on a cruise and and when you arrive in port, you really want to maximize your time spent on shore. On Oahu, in Honolulu, the best excursion uh, from the port area is to Pearl Harbor National Monument. That's sort of a don't-miss attraction. Because it's a National Park Service-administered site, it's very set up for senior citizens and people with mobility issues. In Hilo on the Big Island, I think my answer is going to be pretty similar for uh, Lahaina on Maui and Hilo on the Big Island. Both of those port towns have a lot of Hawaiian history and culture, as well as antique shopping and innovative Hawaiian and fusion restaurants, and they're all just great places to just get off the ship and wander around on your own and make your own sort of half-day or two-hour walking tour. Um, On Kona, on the western side of the Big Island, there are beaches that are quite nearby the port area that you can catch a bus. They have a really good public bus system on the west side of the Big Island, so you can just hop on the bus and then get off at a beach that looks good to you and enjoy the scene. And then on Kauai... um, Kauai is also a very 
atmospheric, small plantation feel kind of place. And uh, so you could do more museums. I have a couple of good museums near the port on Kauai. Or again, just enjoy being on the beaches that are quite near the port area. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Thank you so very much. Good luck, Michelle. Great. I on hope your you trip. have a great trip. Sounds like fun. <laughs> Thank you. I love that idea of a seven day cruise stopping at all the different islands. It sounds like that's an easy way to uh, experience a nice variety of the Hawaiian Islands, but uh, I guess it's critical that you make a point to use it as a springboard and actually get away from the tourist strip and explore the islands properly. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I also think it's an interesting way to see Hawaii for the first time because it sort of harkens back to the great era of steamship travel when so many Hawaiian visitors, you know, took the long trip from California or the West Coast. And it has sort of that romantic appeal. When we're thinking about touring Hawaii using, for instance, cruise ships as a springboard, what would the transportation mode be? I mean, would you rent a car? Uh, I've had some great times renting motorbikes on the islands. Or would you rely on public transportation from the major ports? Public transportation is pretty sketchy apart from sections of Maui and the Big Island and also on most of Oahu. So what car rental companies have done is they've put together island hopper packages that are specifically aimed at people who are either taking flights between the islands or cruises. And so, for example, you'll pay the standard weekly car rental rate, but you'll get two days on this island, two days on another island, one day on another island, which makes it really convenient. You just set up the reservation once, and then they handle all the hassles for you. That is very encouraging because the daily rate is generally much more expensive than seven times the or one-seventh of the weekly rate. Right. Sarah, you mentioned fusion cuisine. I thought Hawaii just ate a lot of spam and pineapples. What's the deal with the <laughs> fusion cuisine? And what's the, with um, the spam, too? <laughs> <laughs> I think spam goes back to... Um, you know, the Hawaiian love of spam comes actually originally from military rations. Um, But what they've done with it is, like they've done with other fusion dishes, is infused, you know, for example, American ingredients with all of the different cultural traditions of cooking of all the people that are in Hawaii, not only the native Hawaiians, but uh, immigrants from Asia, China, the Philippines, and Japan, and also European influences from that uh, late 19th century period of colonization in the early sugar barons. And now, you know, because of the tourist influx and the presence of mega resorts that have hired these star chefs, the cuisine just keeps reaching higher. We have, you know, Hawaiian, Japanese sushi, amazing dishes that take all that bounty that's native to the islands, the tropical fruits and everything like that, and uh, add to it ideas from just about anywhere. Sounds like a wonderful challenge for a great chef to take all that great local produce and uh, fuse it with other great cuisines. Yeah, I don't think anyone can complain about working in Hawaii, that's for sure. (laughs) We have an email from Craig who asks, uh, well, he says he's been to Hawaii on a cruise several years ago. He said it was fantastic, but they did all the touristy things and he'd like to return in the near future. What would the best way of getting beyond the tourist sites and explore more of the Hawaiian culture? You kind of answered that just a second ago, but let's talk about the traditional culture. If you want to have a dose of traditional culture... Does it survive today? Are people actually speaking Hawaiian? Is there Are there enclaves that aren't just uh, Kodak uh, photo shows with a stage and, uh, and a lot of tour groups? You'd be hard-pressed to find communities that speak the Hawaiian language still, although it has experienced a renaissance. Um, I think the most... The easiest way to get in touch with local and traditional Hawaiian culture is to explore the rainy sides of the islands. Most of the tourists flock to the leeward sides of the islands that have the year-round sun and surf, and that's where the most popular beaches are. But most local communities, whether it's arts or culture or outdoor adventures in the rainforest, are on the windward rainy sides of the islands. So no matter which island you visit, if you stick to the rainy side, you're going to see a different, less touristy side of, of the Hawaiian islands. Let's talk a little bit about the just the tourist cliches. I mean, uh, they're here about the, the hula shows and the luau's and the leis. Uh, is that just something that's completely disgusting to somebody who is trying to get away from the tourists? Or is there a way to actually experience a luau and have it uh, leave a good taste in your mouth? No, I think that um, both luau's and hula, they're Hawaiian traditions that date back hundreds of years. And yes, in some cases, they have become exploited and overly touristy. But in some places, you can have a very traditional experience. Again, you just need uh, someone to clue you in on where to look. So for example, on Maui, um, they have one very long-running traditional luau called the Old Lahaina Luau that you're actually going to be served traditional Polynesian dishes and sea performances, for example, by local kids' hula troops. And that's a really authentic 
genuine way to get a taste, literally, of Hawaiian, traditional Hawaiian culture. Um, another option is to see the outdoor sacred hula shows that you can actually see performed on the rim of the volcano in Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. And that's something that tourists and the public are welcome to visit, but it's still a vital part of the local community's traditions. And, and the emphasis is really on local culture. I'm speaking with Sarah Benson, who writes The Lonely Planet Guide to Hawaii. Sarah, given the fact that you can actually have a classy luau in a, in a hula show that feels sensitive to the traditional culture, what would you warn travelers as far as tourist traps to avoid and tourist traps to hit and enjoy? I think what most people come to Hawaii looking for is that sun and surf vacation. And uh, when you're in Hawaii, you can't miss some of the most famous beaches. You know, just a walk along Waikiki in Oahu or, you know, visiting Big Beach and Little Beach in southern Maui or Wailea. Any of those beaches that, you know, you've seen in a photo in a magazine. I mean, you've got to go visit those when you're in Hawaii. You know, the most visited tourist attraction in the islands is Pearl Harbor and the USS Arizona Memorial. And though, you know, hundreds of people visit it every day, that's another don't miss attraction. In terms of tourist traps to avoid, for example, on Maui, a lot of the activities, for example, if you want to go snorkeling or you want to go downhill mountain biking on the volcano, all those really cliche activities that sound so great are just overcrowded. So if you're going to go surfing or hiking, or mountain biking, choose a less popular locale in which to do it. And I think that'll help you avoid the worst of the tourist crush. Sarah, you're done with your trip. You're paging through your journal. Tell me your your favorite experiences when you're uh, enjoying the Hawaiian Islands. The things that I most remember about the Hawaiian Islands are watching the surfers tackle the big waves on the north shore of Oahu, uh, wandering through the antiques and art galleries in the old downtown of Hilo on the big island, where you can also see the lava flow into the ocean, sleeping atop Haleakala Volcano Crater in Maui, wandering on a deserted black sand beach on the Kona side of the big island, and kayaking past those giant sea cliffs on Kauai. All of those are are what I keep going back to Hawaii time and time again for. I guess there's good reason Hawaii has so many visitors. Sarah Benson, author of Lonely Planet Guide to Hawaii, thank you very much. And uh, I guess the only Hawaiian word I know is aloha. Aloha, Rick. Thank you. Each Cancun and Mexico's Caribbean coast were hit hard by Hurricane Wilma in late 2005. Coming up, we'll phone Gary Chandler, who's in the Yucatan updating his guidebook and has the very latest on how the region is recovering. A Cancun update is next on Travel with Rick Steves. Zovem se Marjan Krišković i dolazim sa predivne hrvatske sredozemne obale i putujem sa Rikom Stevesom. So that was Croatian. And uh, what it was is, uh, my name is uh, Marian Krišković. I come from the wonderful Croatian Mediterranean coast, and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Once again in Croatian, zovem se Marian Krišković i dolazim sa predivne hrvatske sredozemne obale i putujem s Rikom Stevesom. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. It's time to head to the Yucatan and uh, see how it's faring after the catastrophic Hurricane Wilma hit in October 2005. I have on the phone from the Yucatan the man who writes the uh, Moon Guidebook to the Yucatan, and that is Gary Chandler. Gary, thanks for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me on. I'm I'm actually updating the the Yucatan guide right now. So, Gary, tell me, uh, first of all, how devastated was the Yucatan coastline after Hurricane Wilma? 
was quite devastated. The, the most affected areas were the island of Cozumel and the city of Cancun. Um, the beach in Cancun was completely stripped of sand. It was just rocks. <laughs> um, many, many of the buildings were, were, had windows blown out or structurally damaged. Cozumel looked like a war zone. I mean, it was just devastated. The, the storm was a Category 5 storm and sat on top of the area, literally on top of Cozumel, for three full days. So you can imagine. Oh, my goodness. I remember seeing uh, on the news the, uh, the storm just pouring into these palatial lobbies of fancy uh, five-star hotels. It's just, it just like bad luck that it just hit right there where the, the most development was. That's right. I mean, you know, this is the Hurricane Alley, so to speak. So it's, uh, you know, the locals will say every 7, 10, 15 years a storm like this will hit. And so no, it wasn't entirely unexpected, I suppose. Okay, this is more than a year after. How's, how are things getting back together? You know, it's amazing. I would say Cancun is physically 90 to 95 percent good as new, if not better. Um, it's just remarkable how quickly um, the country and the people and business owners just pulled everything together. You know, this is a very important region for Mexico, tourism being so important to Mexico and Cancun being their number one destination. So it's no surprise that, it's, that it was a major priority for the country as a whole. But it was also just really neat to hear stories of people, you know, when the storm finally broke, coming out of their homes and pitching in and, you know, shoveling sand or uh, helping people, you know, find their belongings or find their loved ones in, in the cases that they've been separated. You said maybe even better. How could, how could the Yucatan possibly be even better after fixing up after Hurricane Wilma? Well, any area that's along um, uh, the Caribbean, you know, that gets an amount of tropical storms that, that this area does, suffers continual damage or decay. And Cozumel is a perfect example, you know, its plaza is constantly being uh, repainted and repaved and things like that, just from the normal wear and tear of being an island in the Caribbean. Uh, after Wilma, it required the island to completely redo everything, you know, so there's brand new streets and brand new uh, palm trees, and the park looks beautiful, mm-hmm. it's freshly painted. And You're down there right now with your wife working on a new guidebook, right? That's right. So uh, the rebuilding is done with taste, or does it feel like a, a bunker so it won't be damaged again? No, it's redone with taste. I mean, this is an area that's, that's no uh, stranger to tourism and, and the likes and dislikes of tourists. But I think, you know, it, it certainly there are certain uh, changes that are made to, to help protect the, the region from future hurricanes. And a lot of, you know, a lot of hotels took the opportunity. You know, the season was dead. There, was no, there were no tourists coming so a lot of hotels took the opportunity of not only rebuilding but completely renovating, spending millions of dollars to improve their hotels from the way they were before. So you've got some hotels that were three, four stars that are now uh, luxury resorts. Wow. Now you said it's 95% rebuilt. Uh, would you say the tourism is back 95% also? No. I mean, that's that's the big hole. It's uh, The region was very heavily hit and has gotten a reputation in the United States and Canada and elsewhere that it was just wiped off the map. In the case of Cozumel, there's the idea that the reef, which is so famous, the coral reef, uh, has been completely destroyed. And, and neither of those are true, of course. The, the hotels and everything are, are right back the way they used to be. There's certain ones that are still closed, but it, it's really open for business. And, and the reef is, is rebounding as well. But it, the region is still suffering from very low tourism, um, just because of the idea that, that it's no longer a place to go. So the image has been hurt more than... The image has been very hurt. In fact, you hear a lot of people complain more bitterly about the Weather Channel and the reports that they made about possible hurricanes and things wow. like that than they complain about the storm itself. Does that mean there's uh, better values right now in the Yucatan? Yeah, there are. Yes, I would say there are some good deals out there. There were definitely some good deals last year. Um, and, you know, prices are high here. This is not a budget destination, but um, there are definitely some deals to be found. How does a hurricane hurt the, the reefs? Is that just wave damage? It hurts the reef by wave damage, yes, but it, more significantly the depositing sand on top of the coral. You know, the, the coral is very sensitive to um, contact with anything. That, you know, they tell divers and snorkelers, don't touch the reef even, even lightly. 
because the little polyps are very sensitive. So you deposit a couple inches or, or more of sand on top of the coral, and, and they just die. Wow. So you said in Cancun, oh, I can remember these beautiful beaches in Cancun, just stones and the sand was gone, and it That's ended right. on the reefs. They, had, they spent months uh, dredging the waters around Isla Mujeres and taking the sand back to Cancun and spraying it with big fire-like boats. <laughs> wow, that's a huge industrial process. That's right. I mean, you know, this was fascinating, though, about the storm. Is, you know, the sand was stripped from Cancun but deposited elsewhere. So in some cases, you find people who say, you know, <laughs> my beach got a lot better after the storm. Well, all over, all over the world, uh, beach resorts sort of uh, hope and pray that the winter will be good to them because it's, it's, a, it's a regular problem. The beach cannot be there next year depending on the prevailing winds or tides or climate. That's right. I mean, and you know, you talk about global warming and things like that. I mean, the the ocean and the tides are going to do what they're going to do, and there's very little you can do to shape them. You know, and so it's true. Areas like this are really dependent on on uh, the tides and the ocean and the sand being what it is, what it has always been, and we just don't know that's the case. Now, all this rebuilding that's been done, has it been with uh, local money, American business money for American-owned hotels, or is the Mexican government subsidizing this? I would say all of the above. Um, the Mexican government certainly put in a lot of effort in terms of building roads and uh, the civic infrastructure. A lot of the hotels are American-owned, and so they got uh, they have that sort of backing. And there's a lot of you know Mexican-owned businesses, uh, small businesses and large. And so I think the, the, the money and the resources and the, the energy and the work came from all the sources possible. A big team effort. Is the cruise industry strong in the Yucatan, or does it stick mostly out in the Caribbean islands? It's very strong in Cozumel. Um, and, and there's another interesting story. From Cozumel was hit very hard, but rebounded very quickly. And one of the markers, uh, one of the flags saying we're back, was the arrival of the first cruise ship. And the president was on hand for the, the occasion. So that shows you just how important tourism and cruise ships are. So cruising's back area. with a vengeance in Cozumel then. That's right, yeah. I was, we were just there, and I think there were 12 when we were there. I'm talking with Gary Chandler, and Gary, along with his wife Lisa, are the authors of The Moon Handbook to the Yucatan. Gary's uh, on the telephone with us right now from Playa del Carmen, which is uh, about 40 miles south of the the center of where uh, Hurricane Wilma just devastated the Yucatan coast back in October of 2005. Gary, you just uh, walked to the the little phone center where you're making this call. What's it like right now in Playa del Carmen? Uh, It's it's busy, you know, and the crowds are starting to show up. Playa was not hit as hard as Cancun and Cozumel in the storm, so the... uh, the beach is great, and in fact, there's a tremendous amount of building going on um, uh, kind of in the northern part of town, condos and the like. And uh, we were here in, uh, in October, and we've just come back, and the difference is stark. The, the tourists are definitely starting to arrive. Any, any, uh, anything left from hurricane damage? Uh, you see odd things, you know, houses that, private houses that haven't been rebuilt, and in a few cases, hotels and businesses that haven't reopened. But for the most part, this area wasn't as badly hit, so, so they were much more able to, to bounce back than, than other areas. You know, I was out in the Caribbean once, and I, I had local people telling me that their traditional you know, ramshackle huts actually withstood the storms better than a lot of cheap modern buildings. Uh, have you ever found anything like that? Is there some irony that the, uh, the big expensive uh, you know, American-style buildings get more damage than the uh, little thatched huts? Yeah, it's interesting you say that. There's a little restaurant on the island of Cozumel um, that is in what is either the oldest or one of the oldest buildings on the island. And it's been through, you know, tens of storms. And in Wilma, it suffered, I think, a little bit of damage to the siding. The, the owner, it's, an, it's a restaurant now, and, and the, uh, the French and Mexican couple who own it uh, were just shocked. They expected to see the place just devastated. But all around them there was destruction, you know, the modern hotels and things like that. But this little, what looks like a ramshackle building from the outside, stood up like a champ, you know. Boy, that's a thought-provoking image. <laughs> we got an email from Gail in Snohomish County, Washington, and, and Gail writes, uh, 
How are the snorkeling areas now? I was pleased to find a protected area near Tulum, an underwater park with dandy fish, and wonder about going back there or to Cozumel. Uh, how has this area fared after the hurricane uh, for snorkeling? The snorkeling is still great. I mean, there was definite damage to parts of the reef. Um, there are areas that if you've got a special favorite spot, you may find go back and find that much of the coral is, is died. But that doesn't mean there aren't still terrific places to snorkel because not, not every place was damaged. Um, and even if you find damage, I was snorkeling and was kind of really fascinated to, to see the patterns of the coral that had been broken off and lying down on the, the sand and you see coral washed up on the, the ground. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. The, you, there's places to see live, healthy coral and then this is a chance to see the the awesome impact of a storm like Wilma. Hmm. And I would imagine, I remember when I was in the Isla Buhari's, the, the boatmen there, they knew where to go for the best coral, and they probably just changed their route a little bit. That's right. They, they you know, that's their business. So they search around and they find the place to go. Gary, uh, of course, the storm devastated the coastline. Did it get inland? A lot of people side trip from Cancun and so on to see Chichen Itza and the different Mayan sites. I haven't been inland yet, but my understanding is that there is very little damage. The storm um, flooded uh, much of Cancun City and somewhat inland, but most of the areas that people are familiar with, like Merida or Chichen Itza, like you mentioned, um, were not even affected, just got heavy rain. Wow. And uh, my personal favorite around there is Tulum. I just thought the beaches around Tulum were so beautiful. I remember with my wife there uh, walking on these uh, moonlit beaches, just forever expanses of white sand, and it was just a, a paradise at Tulum, T-U-L-U-M. How did Tulum fare? Tulum was fine. It, it um, was well south of the storm, and so uh, relatively little damage took place there. And the beaches are, are just as lovely as you described them. I was there last week. It's just just spectacular, like you said, walking on the beach with the moon and, and just the palm trees and the sound of the waves. It's still a, a really special place. Gal, if nobody's ever experienced a moon shadow with silhouetted palm trees, that's, uh, to me, a classic Yucatan view. It's true. It's uh, You know, Tulum is not the backpacker haven that it used to be, and some people kind of poo-poo it for getting more upscale, and, and there's some truth to that, but it's it's still just an amazingly beautiful place. Are there any places, I stayed at a place called Cabanas Tulum, and uh, I don't know if it's still there, but sort of a guest house on the beach, or has it all been uh, developed and turned into high-rises and, uh, you know, four-star luxury? There's no high-rises. There's a pretty strong um, laws against uh, high-density uh, hotel development. There's also no, as yet, electricity on that most of that coastline, and that's partly the, due to the efforts of the hotel owners themselves, because they know if electricity comes, it will change the, the atmosphere of the place. You so know, that's still mostly cabanas and beach bungalows, that sort of thing. That's very interesting. I don't even remember the fact there was no electricity there, but that was a key element to why I was so charmed by it. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's one resort now that's right at the, right at the intersection of the main road, and they got electricity, and they lit up their facade with this bright blue neon, and it just is so out of place. I mean, it would make sense in Cancun or even Playa, and it might even be beautiful and kind of modern and attractive, but in Tulum it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It makes you appreciate, for all the difficulties that having no electricity brings, it makes you appreciate just, just the advantages that it has as well. well. I'm talking with Gary Chandler. He and his wife Lisa are the authors of The Moon Handbook to the Yucatan. Gary, I, I know uh, how the book business works, and I don't think you're motivated entirely by your royalties because it's just no way to get rich, frankly. What keeps you so enthusiastic about sharing the Yucatan with American travelers? I just I love the area. I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm often asked, where's your favorite place to travel? And people expect me to say some exotic locale, you know, been to the Amazon and, or, you know, Angkor Wat and Cambodia. But to me, the Yucatan is just so rich. I mean, it's got beautiful beaches. It's got amazing uh, prehistory. Uh, it's got amazing colonial history. It's, you know, the cenotes where you can, these freshwater sinkholes where you can snorkel and scuba dive. It's just got everything in it. And on top of that, it's so close to home for me, you know. I, I, I just love it. I, I can't speak highly enough about it. A cenote. That's my favorite image. Take me on a quick swim through a cenote. It's just like going through any dry cave where you've got your stalactites and your stalagmites and things like that, except it's filled with crystalline water. 
and uh, you're snorkeling, and the light is filtering in through the, the cavern hole, and it, you know, that kind of eerie blue color. And uh, it's just out of this world. If you, if you scuba dive, it's really one of the premier places to go. Or if you can just bar- borrow a fins and a snorkel from your uh, little guest house hotel. Sure, you can. There's lots of cenotes where you can pay a couple bucks and they uh, let you go and you snorkel around, and and the water is just crystal clear and nice and cool, and there's little fishes and uh, other uh, plant life in the in the cenotes, and it's just a really amazing environment because you're also on top of that, you're out in the middle of the jungle, you know. So great image, just one of the many facets of the Yucatan Peninsula, and thankfully, it's getting put back together again after the horrors of Hurricane Wilma. Gary Chandler author of The Moon Handbook to the Yucatan. Thank you very much for joining us. No problem, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Lindo capullo de Alelín Si tú supieras mi dolor, correspondieras a mi amor y calmarás mi sufrir porque tú sabes que sin ti la vida es nada para mí. Tú bien lo sabes, capullito de Aleli. You see, you cannot find romance. Oh, oh you can in Yucatán. You see, your feet cannot to dance. <laughs> you can in Yucatán. You think that Adam had it nice? <laughs> Why, all he had was paradise. Can you do better? Yes, you can. In Yucatan. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. That's where you can look up information on today's program, listen again in our audio archives, and find links to audio and video podcast features. You can also submit your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of the show or add your comments in our ongoing message boards. The people who help bring you Travel with Rick Steves include communications support from Robin Stencil, Sonia Grosset, and Rachel Unk, with technical support from Jonathan Lee. We had additional help today from Milt Wallace at the studios of the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.